On Book TV's Afterwards, Victor Davis Hanson discusses the campaign, election, and presidency of Donald Trump. He's interviewed by former Republican Congressman Dave Bratt of Virginia. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. I'd like to welcome everyone and uh, just begin by saying it's just an honor and a privilege to be with a good friend and a conservative academic scholar of the highest order, Victor Davis Hanson. I think they've already interviewed you, but uh, your list of books is incredible. Your scholarship in the classics all the way through the case for Trump in the modern period. And uh, so I think we'll just dig in yep. right away to the uh, to the book. But maybe before we get there, tell us a little bit about who you are. How, how, how did you choose to move from the classics into this modern political conversation? <laughs> well, with some difficulty. And thank you for being here as well. Uh, well, I grew up on a farm, and I still live there. Fifth generation and live in the same house. And then I commute. I taught for 22 years at classical Greek and Latin to mostly minority kids at Cal State Fresno, started a classics program. And then at 49, I retired and went to the Hoover Institution where I commute. And I had graduated from Stanford, so that was one of the attractions that it was in California. And I wrote a series of books on the military and agrarian uh, connection of ancient Greeks, as well as military histories of the ancient world. And then I started broadening into the Civil War, World War II, and then out of that, about an hour after 9-11 had happened, Rich Lowry at the National View had read a book and asked me to contribute a column, and I haven't missed a week since wow. in the last 18 years. So I've been writing political commentary, and I just finished a large book on World War II, and I was kind of tired, wanted to take a break, and then some people suggested I might want to write about Donald Trump. But that was, as you're right, that was a break from everything I'd done before. I'd never written a book on a contemporary political issue like that, especially one as controversial as Donald Trump. Right, right. And I I love the case you, you make here. There's evidence after evidence after evidence. I got a little chuckle. I did some book reviews, and the left begrudgingly mm-hmm. had to acknowledge that if you must read a conservative book, this one's pretty good. And so that's, that's pretty high praise. Well, I, I dedicated it to the deplorables. Right. And my idea was, rather than just write a campaign track for Trump or one of the, the many left-wing denunciations, I just wanted to say to myself, I've never met Trump, never been to his White House, I haven't asked anybody for a job. I just want to be analytical. How did he get elected? What's he done since January 2017, and why has he? Why did he get elected, and why is he pretty much enjoying the same polling rating that he did when he was elected? Right, right. Well, let's get right into yes. the, the content. The title is The Case for Trump, and so for an opening, why don't you just give us a, a broad mm-hmm. overview of, and, and you know, many Cliff's Notes yeah. version, what is The Case for Trump? Well, he looked in 2016, there was this very gifted field of 16 uh, Republican rivals, and you know them all much better than I do. And they had a a Republican orthodoxy. And that orthodoxy, whether we like it or not, had not won the popular vote in five out of the last six elections. And and they had not won 51% since George H.W. Bush did it with Lee Outwater as his manager in uh, 1988. But at the same time, they'd done very well with you guys at the local level. 
they won over 1,100 seats under the Obama tenure. Yep. So something was wrong. And I don't know why the other 16 didn't ga grasp that. But this outsider with mm -hmm. the first person to be a serious candidate without uh, political or military experience comes mm -hmm. in and he says, well, the center of the country's hollowed out. And they're still important, and they're really important because we've underestimated their electoral value in states that could flip Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. And they have a particular concern with the de Democrats' issue, I should say, and the Republicans. And what was that Republican that made him different, that issue? And it was basically four or five things. China is not preordained to rule the world. They, they are weak in many areas, and they need to be st stood up to, especially on their mercantile trade policy. You can't have a so sovereign country without a secure border. Too many people in the Republicans want to import cheap labor that hurts the lower middle classes, among them minorities. Three, we're fighting wars abroad that could be termed optional, and even when we have tactical or battlefield success, for a lot of reasons, we haven't been able to translate that into strategic resolution in our favor, so we're going to curtail that. And fourth and lastly, he had a message that said, there's no such thing as a post-industrial or a post-manufacturing age. We have cheap electricity, we have cheap power, we're co our workers are competitive with Europe. The reason that Cleveland and Detroit and Flint, Michigan and Milwaukee are not doing well is not the workers fault. They didn't take opiates or they didn't drop out because um, they, they couldn't do the job. They're suffering pathologies because of a trade system that favored our rivals over themselves. And those issues then were able in the campaign, even though he was outspent three to one, even though he had no political experience and even though he was running against a very well-versed politically candidate in Hillary Clinton, he flipped enough of those states to win despite losing the popular vote. And then people said, well, he'll be a liberal because he had so many different party affiliations. Politicians don't keep their promises or he'll get in a war or we'll get in a recession. And the last 24 months, we've seen 3% annualized economic growth, record low unemployment, especially record low minority unemployment, record uh, we're the largest uh, petroleum producer in the world. He's increased that by 3 million barrels per day. Natural gas, we're still the largest producer. And he's uh, deregulated, and we have low inflation and low interest. We, uh, he should address the debt, but so far, given the economic record, it's been pretty well. And abroad, there were a lot of things that people wanted to do, but they were afraid to do. Get out of the Iran deal, move the embassy to Jerusalem, the Paris Climate Accord was really just symbolic. We had already met the expectations through the use of natural gas, uh, address the China problem, stop North Korea from testing missiles and nuclear weapons, and try to do something about Russia. The Obama administration, in anger at Bush's tough line after the Osatia, had had this reset policy that was an utter failure and had empowered Putin. And yet there were problems because of the investigations of Trump on this sort of supposed collusion. But we haven't, we didn't really address Russia in a way that would have been helpful. And all that led to speculation about 2020. If the economy holds and we don't get into a war, uh, I think his argument will be, I'm the only thing between you and socialism given the trajectory. And that's pretty much what the book is about. Yeah, super summary. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I wanted to kind of dig in uh, to on, on the politics 
I wish the policy mattered more. Just the if, if it did, it seems like the case you made with mm-hmm. rapid GDP growth, mm-hmm. record unemployment lows across yeah. African-American, Hispanic women, et cetera, lowest of all time. Uh, and the foreign policy, we'll dig into that a little bit more as we go on. If it was just on that, it'd be a home run. But the left right now, and you, you get into this uh, in terms of the identity politics, et cetera, and the left attempts to get rid of the policy debate, and they want to frame a moral debate, not just with the president, but with members of Congress, mm-hmm. and they'll try to label Republicans uh, in very derogatory uh, ways with racism, sexism, identity, uh, policy uh, kind of labels. And uh, so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what I think you do in this book that's just tremendous as a historian. I think you really get into the grounding, the historical grounding, which is also philosophical and hugely ethical. Mm -hmm. And the use of terminology throughout the book, you have a moral strain running through. Mm -hmm. uh, And I'll I'll just read a couple uh, Mm -hmm. snippets uh, on page 244 so folks at home can, can follow and Find the book. You note the uh, four major charges Hillary launched against Trump, and the, and the problem with the charges was not that they were all necessarily false. Rather, the likelihood was that even if true, they would easily boomerang back on Hillary herself and thereby have the perverse effect of almost exonerating the less reputable Trump. And you further say Trump campaigned as if he were a known sinner, Hillary as an underappreciated saint. And I love this line, but the problem you conclude is that sinners sin and saints do not. Mm-hmm. And so in some, Hillary as saint had too many sins. Yes. And in that head-to-head contest, Trump ironically wins the ethical contest. Yes. And I'd like if you can dig into that a little bit. I he, think He that did the, the unimaginable, I think, for two or three reasons. One, he implicitly redefined ethics and morality in a broader sense. And by that I mean when he went in um, to West Virginia and there were people hurting, he said, I'm going to address the coal problem. And he called it beautiful coal, beautiful clean coal. And he said things that we've never heard a Republican uh, candidate say. He used the first person plural possessive pronoun, our, our miners, our vets, Mm -hmm. our farmers. She came in and said, these people are going to have to find another job. And so what he was saying is, even though I have been married three times and I'm excessive in my speech, I'm crafting a policy for people in the industrial heartland that's going to change their lives because the job is, is center to a person's existence. It's give a man or a woman a good job. They get dignity. They get respect. They get uh, more chances of a cohesive family. That's a moral issue, and that took away... Uh, from Hillary's charges that he was a sexist or that. And then secondly, there was something about the authenticity issue. Hillary, when she goes places, she adopts the dialect of the region, even though she mm-hmm. mostly was a political creature of Washington. When Barack Obama goes in inner city, he drops his G's. When John Kerry goes to the state fair, he wears flannel. When candidates want to promote their gun fides they put on camouflage. Donald Trump wore that same big tie, the same suit, the same hair, the yellow comb over the orange skin, 
just like he was in a Manhattanite with a Queens accent wherever he was. So people said there has to be something why he's doing this. He's, he doesn't really care to pander to us. He is what he is. And the strange thing, that made him more of a sympathetic character to people. He was genuine. I think that was important. And then the third was, when we say the word nationalism, we always think of something perverse or wrong, that we're going to build up a big military and take over people. But what he said was, why are we spending capital on people we don't know who don't necessarily like us when we have so many people who are hurting? And these people, the message was, the very wealthy people who are white have used this new term, white privilege, but they do enjoy sort of a white privilege, an old boy network getting their kids in school. They get, uh, they're used to long generations. But these, these people have never had any privilege. And yet, almost as a psychological mechanism, they say, you have white privilege to the people who don't to exempt them from who do. And that was a really popular message. And he did it in a variety of ways. And there was something moral and ethical about that as well. And I want to continue on that because uh, President Trump... Uh, had in some ways a very unique ability to do that. And you kind of point out with the 16 Republican challengers, mm -hmm. the inability to copy, replicate, massage it. Uh, and in the book, you say more importantly, Trump talked like a brawler, mm -hmm. uh, not a Republican polite politician. He assumed the role of the flawed man of action, overshadowing his rival ankle-biting critics who scored points, but only in the context of Trump. Voters saw advantages in unleashing such a pit bull in the general election, even if they were unsure where he would stray or whom exactly he would bite. And then you ask, why did not Republican rivals at least approx uh, expropriate, massage, or otherwise subvert Trump's issues? And you state, in a nutshell, they were captive to doctrinaire Republicanism, uh, even as its dogmas had alienated many of its own base. There was no longer a viable social and cultural conservatism of the sort outlined by Burke and Tocqueville, or for a time embodied by Ronald Reagan himself, a uh, self-made man from the Midwest. And so why was Trump uh, so unique in his ability to pull that off where others could not? Yeah. I think it had something to do with the fact that he had no political experience. And even though he grew up in, as an urbanite and a Manhattanite, he was an outsider. I once asked a Manhattanite, when I was writing the book, if you have your dinner parties, is he on the A or B list? He said he's on the Z list. <laughs> so he had that Queens outer borough accent, and he did things that offended the elite in Manhattan. And they, it, whatever that was, it created a combative idea of me against them, which made him unusually ready to accept an unorthodox idea and to, to identify with people that were not part of that. So when he I think he really changed the debates. The first debate, if you remember, Rand Paul made a good point. He said, you know, my opponent, Donald Trump, has accepted money from people who want something in return, and he's almost justified it. And Trump, most politicians would say, no, I didn't do that, or how dare you do that? And Trump said, actually, I do. And you came up to my office and wanted $10,000, and I wrote you a check. And that, we hadn't heard that before. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily an endorsement, but he was saying to you politicians, you're so sanctimonious. And Rand Paul, Rand Paul is a different politician. He's a maverick. But even he suffered from that charge of hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is that people thought that Trump could say, say anything to anyone, anywhere, 
at any time. And while that's volatile and dangerous, it was also liberating for people. They just they tuned in because they didn't know what to expect, but they did expect it would be authentic. Mm-hmm. I want to dig into your Greek background yeah. a little bit yeah. and the philosophers and the history of philosophy and theology in this country going way back even from zero on. Yeah. Most philosophers in the Judeo-Christian tradition had to stay somewhat in line. I think David, David, uh, David Hume and uh, Adam Smith were kind of contrast mm-hmm. there. Adam Smith kind of towed the Calvinist orthodox line and Hume departed and asked Smith to publish his works after. So there's, there's, there's kind of, if you go too far off the reservation, and that's held true pretty much, I think, until recently, the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And now the philosophical uh, underpinnings are just falling apart, in, in my view. And I'm just curious to get your view. Plato started the conversation, tried to define the good mm-hmm. and the right. All of our founders would have been right in that line. Harvard was founded, you know, for Christ and truth and its mission statement, Yale, Princeton, all of them. Mm-hmm. Similarly, Madison went to Princeton Seminary, roughly speaking, wrote the Constitution with that Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. kind of framework. And now we come up uh, to this day, and uh, I got a kick out of uh, some of your quotes were excellent that you opened the chapters. And David Brooks had a quote, uh, which I paraphrase. He, he, Brooks said, I got the sense that Barack Obama knew both policy and political philosophy better than me. And so I know what he's getting at there. Uh, But on the other hand, the left has somehow been able to stylistically convey Mm -hmm. they believe in these first principles Mm -hmm. and have an ethic or a philosophy, but they cannot name. And and this is true since the 60s. In most major universities, the ethics courses will be on utilitarianism or Aristotle or Kant, maybe. Mm -hmm. But no mention of religion, no mention of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Well, they, that, that's true, and they, they go from the Enlightenment in Greece and Republican Rome right to the European re- <laughs> Renaissance and then subsequent Enlightenment. But I think the big fault line now is that classical philosophy, it, it evolves into Christianity, mm-hmm. Neoplatonism, mm-hmm. and into Europe, is based on uh, two doctrines. At least in the secular side, it's based on empiricism. You look at the world around you and you observe it, and then you have an inductive method. What do these examples tell me in the general so that specifically I can make a worldview mm-hmm. that takes account for reality? Mm-hmm. And there is some in Plato and then Christianity, this idea of transcendence. And we're going to do this to make sense of why we're here and maybe God or a higher power. Some window, in, for Plato it was mathematics. Mm-hmm. Why are these prime numbers? Does that give us a glimpse? And for Christianity and St. Augustine, mm-hmm. it's a way to find out uh, about Jesus Christ and on to God. But it's not a practical, uh, Aristotle is the most practical, but it's not a practical way of, of having the good life here. It's a tragic view. We're never going to be perfect. Human nature is flawed. We have to see redemption in our limited time. We have to lead the good life for a transcendent afterlife. Modern philosophy, especially in the French Enlightenment, came in and said that's wrong, that we don't believe in this equality of opportunity. It doesn't exist. We have to have a quality result. Everybody has to be equal. We'd rather be, as Tocqueville said, we'd rather have some. most people poor than most people pretty well off, but wild in inequality. So the, the purpose of the state, political philosophy mm-hmm. from your quote, is how do we get a mechanism to make people 
equal who are not born equal, because I'm not equal to you, you're not equal to the cameraman, we're all different. But how are we all going to have the same income in the Mr. And that requires a refutation of both classical philosophy and religion, because it says man himself has the wisdom to do that, but he needs the power. And many, many of the classical philosophers, especially the tradition in Americanism of Jeffersonian idea of agrarianism, is limited government. Liberal government says, I'm, I'm going to give you all an equality of opportunity and we'll try to have the church, the family, and tradition to help smooth out the inequality. The French Revolution and that legacy on the left says, no, we want a powerful state, we want to go into your lives, we want to take from you, give to him, make you think this and that. It actually required a, a destruction of empiricism and that was what the French postmodernism, they, when that didn't work, they said, you know what, this whole idea of language, it's all a construct. It's a hierarchy has made the rules, Plato, Aristotle. Now we have it transmogrified into white males did it. We, we, we reject the idea of facts. Whose truth is that? Remember in the Kavanaugh hearing, I'm going to testify about my truth, and this is my narrative. And the idea is there is no truth anymore because that truth did not give us what we wanted. So we're going to abolish the system itself. That's what's nihilistic and new about it, I think. Yeah, and, and, and just in the last few presidential cycles, President Obama at first, and you go through this case, ran as a centrist yes. at first, and within a year he started revealing, you know, I'm going to fundamentally transform this country. Yeah. And prior, he, he had made links to, uh, you know, the great thinkers. That he linked Gandhi with, yeah. with Martin Luther King, Jr., yeah. and with Reinhold Niebuhr, the great Protestant theologian, and he would do that to build up his, you know, bona fides in terms of intellectual half that Brooks likes. Yeah. But then in the end, uh, when he veers off hard left, he can't sustain that thesis. And that, that Judeo-Christian piece is very powerful politically to use. And he, he bounces off of that. And the left right now, I think they're in a hard spot because uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition grounds uh, human rights language. It, it emerges from the dignity inherent in every person, et cetera. And so it, how is the left able to get away with this shift where the American people don't catch on, that they run centrist, mm -hmm. uh, but then go hard left, and in the news today well, you, you can't miss it? They would say that their ends are so noble and anointed that they have to use any means necessary, the good lie or whatever, noble lie. So Obama would tell us, I couldn't say that uh, I was for amnesties or open borders or for gay marriage or for radical deficit Keynesian spending because if I did, I wouldn't have been elected. If I wouldn't have been elected, I wouldn't have been able to do all these good things for you. And he would, but he can't say that. But I think if you, when you say the left, if we're, as we're speaking today, there's about 10 or 12 signature new issues from the progressive left. And so how would classical philosophy or the Judeo-Christian ethics explain them. So abortion now is not just if a, a question of the right says if the fetus, a fetus is a human being at conception, the old parameters were, uh, well, we'll fight about it, but if the uh, person on the conservative side said in cases of rape or incest you might allow an abortion. People on the left said you have to have abortions all the way. But that, that, that dialogue's gone now. Now the position is if a fetus is viable outside and is in the birth canal and is outside the birth canal, a person can kill it. 
Well, that's in, that's in, that's no longer abortion. It's it's infanticide or murder. And the same thing. We went from uh, the new Green Deal saying cap and trade. Now we're going to ban the internal combustion engine and ruin the economy for an unproven thesis. And we're talking about not just not building parts of the wall but maybe even tearing down the existing parts of the wall on the southern border. And we're not talking about giving mechanisms for students to deal with their student debt, but abolishing with the, like the French Revolution or the Roman Revolution, all debt. So what I'm getting at is once the left gets in these stages, and historically, philosophically, each iteration becomes reactionary the next day, and a new, harder left appearance sort of get rid of the monarchy and then have Republican government, then have the Gerondists, then have the Jacobins, and then you get to the guillotine, and then you get to Napoleon. That's where we are now. We have these young Congress people, and they are redefining what is progressive, and it's a anti-empirical, anti-equality of opportunity, anti-founders, anti-Rome, uh, Jerusalem, Athens doctrine. And it requires them to say there is no such thing as gender. There is no such thing as uh, sexual preference. It's all socially constructed. And social construction depends on who has power and who doesn't. And people are poor not because of habits or anything. They're poor because the system was created through the use of language. You can see language is changing to the use of euphemisms. Um, and it's 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 been predicted by people like Orwell and Huxley. They, they told us where it was going, mm-hmm. and, and it's not, it doesn't end up happily. Yeah, and this, I, I should thank C-SPAN for this opportunity to yeah. dig in a little deeper. Yeah. And so I've, I've been going into the moral case, and somehow Trump was able to frame a narrative that he is, is supporting the middle class, which is yeah. a major theme in your book. Uh, and he's supporting conservative uh, judges and freedom of religion and freedom of speech on campus, et cetera. And he, he's been able to weave those pieces into his platform. And uh, in your discussion on the middle class, uh, you say the common denominator uh, to Trump's attacks on trade and globalization has been the loss of good-paying U.S. jobs, mm-hmm. especially in the hinterland, a key theme that reappears in the book over and over and over and appears with President Trump over and over. The middle class has been snubbed by elitist intellectuals and special interests and the deep state, and Trump's cultural attack was straightforward. And in one sentence, jobs is the common denominator that provides the evidence needed to support this foundation empirically. Agree? Disagree? Yeah, Yeah, I do. And uh, I think some of the frustrations the left has with Trump is that they look at his past and they say he cannot be the person who says that anti-Semitism is bad. He cannot be the person who criticizes Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, Hirono, or Camilla Harris for being a bit showing bigotry toward Catholics or deprecating the Knights of Columbus. He can't be the person who says that he gave uh, a minority inner-city youth a chance of having leverage over an employer because those are moral issues, and he's a moral person. But what he is saying, and getting back to this philosophical, is the left has been unhinged from these traditional rule protocols of the way you think about things and tradition and religion and community, and they're off into territory that we've read about, but we've really not seen in the United States. And he is going to be the uh, bearer of traditional pushback against them. 
and it's going to be pushed back all along the line. It's not just economic, cultural, social, political. And uh, that's something that has bewildered everybody because he's not supposed to be able to do that. He's not, he's not the right person to do that. And yet he has the skills, and he, he's empowered because we're, we're shocked by his sometimes outrageous behavior. But then in the Trump calculus, he's saying things, is it amoral or unethical to be rude and crude and give a person a job or to be sober and judicious and polite and then lie about what you're going to do and not make a campaign promise? That's the central issue of the whole Trump phenomenon. How, how do we deal with somebody who's not elegant or not even voracious all the time but has an agenda that helps more people versus somebody who plays by all the rules and has perfect personal comportment and yet does things that hurt people? And that's a philosophical question that goes back to the Greeks. Yeah, and I, I think it's one of the most powerful points you make throughout throughout the book, and I'll, I'll keep going uh, on this case uh, with the middle class, and not just the middle class, uh, but more on the ethics. One reason why President Trump was not abandoned by his supporters when he often said outrageous things, and I'm quoting from you, was precisely because they felt he was retaliatory, not preemptory. Yeah. Trump, to their mind, was launched as a long-overdue ballistic missile against those who had been showering the working class with crude and often racist attacks. Trump was their long-overdue nemesis to the hubristic stereotyping of those in the media, the government, Silicon Valley, and in politics. And I think the phrasing there is just is, is great. And yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't very hard to do the research because people in Silicon Valley were very open about what they thought of what they said. They said red state places are terrible, there's no schools, the people are def- uh, demented, they're, they're pathological, who would want to live there? And I think in the book I, I got a wide r- array of quotations. And then from the never Trump right or the left, there was this contempt that, of the way that even people looked and the talked. And the idea was that they had not caught on to the new secular religion. And, and, and the new secular religion was defined as a global economy, a person in San Francisco or Washington had more in common with somebody in Tokyo or London or Paris than they did in Bakersfield or Des Moines, and they were sort of ashamed of prior American traditions. Obama sort of started it when he had this idea that it, we, America had to be alone, of all countries, perfect, or it wasn't good in its past. And that meant that you could topple a statue or it could change a name. And that was, there was no discussion about it. Where I was at Stanford University, one day I came to, cl- to school and Father Junipio Serra, who whatever you think of Catholicism or the 17th century, was 18th, early 18th century, was pretty heroic. But his name had been excised as something we see in the Soviet Union. And so you say, well, why is that? Why do we take the moral system of the present, not factor in the physical difficulties of the pre-industrial past and then pass judgment on the dead who cannot reply or argue back and then do that as a process of virtue signaling and do it opportunately because if they really felt that way they would take away the name Leland Stanford Junior University who brought in Asian laborers and by any calculus was as hard on non-white population and and they don't do that because they want to be branded with a Stanford degree. They don't want to have a different name. They've invested so their career is so... Trump, what he did is he was bringing in all of these contradictions and hypocrisies to the left, and he did it in this moral framework, and it it really drove him crazy. I think that's one of the sources of their their furor at him, 
that he's not supposed to have the moral ground to dare say anything moral about us. Right, right. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. One question I still had in mind at the, as I went through the book, there's just a, not a contradiction in, in the book, but just with the American uh, electorate right now. You show that uh, Trump's use of crude language, and you're, you don't hold any punches on that. You quote both sides and all sides fairly mm-hmm. and accurately, and it, it, you make it very clear that that language really was off-putting to the independents. Yes. And typically in politics, when you lose the independents, you're in trouble. Yes. Uh, but juxtaposed against that, you, you raise some, some evidence which leaves most common-sense folks wondering how Trump and the Republicans aren't winning by even more. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just read you one example. Uh, Midwestern states, as Democrats pivoted from concerns for diversity to ranting against white supremacy and white privilege, Democrats were apparently oblivious to the fact that 67% of the electorate was still white. Yes. And that most of that majority was neither wealthy nor especially privileged. And so the question is, how can they even be in the ballpark? How do they pull this off on the left? And how do you explain this tension with the independents where on the one sense Trump's crude language is off-putting, but on the other hand, the left's strategy is just numbing. I mean, when yeah. they're mocking 67% of their own electorate, yeah. why is it that white independents would even give an ear to people who are just crudely putting them down? A couple of things, and one of them is what came out of the civil rights movement Going, even going back to the Civil War, there was a sense of a lot of people who were not people of color that there had been institutionalized racism, and they wanted to be at the forefront, and they were. And during 60 years, 70 years ago, when we had the Civil Rights Movement, and they supported affirmative action for African Americans. But what happened was, then people didn't become introspection didn't come introspective and empirical, so they we kept adding to the number of victims. So we coined a new word, diversity, and we didn't even think about it, but it didn't mean anymore that you had grievances against the past for racial bias. You could c- get off uh, a boat from Argentina and be blue-eyed but have a Spanish name and be in diversity. You could come from India. You could come from Egypt. And the, the number of victims then became 30% and if you add women to half the population, you can have 200 million people who had claims. So this white group, and that's even a problematic term because everybody's family's intermarried now, this group then suddenly said, well, we had the civil rights movement, we had affirmative action, and why am I guilty or what did I do wrong that somebody from India or somebody from Palestine just comes here or crosses the border one day and all of a sudden has a whole list of grievances that require government remuneration or reparation? And so that that group is starting to erode. It's a pretty recent phenomenon. And I think what's happened to the Democratic Party is they're in shock because they said, well, we just took that group because they were the old union households, and now we're losing them. But then when they started losing them, they said, it doesn't really matter because we've had 16 million people come in illegally. We have groups that are non-white, and we're going to make them identify by their superficial appearance. It's not going to be incidental to your, the old melting pot. It's going to be essential under the new salad bowl. So they felt if we can't win these deplorables back, then we'll bring in other voters and we will have a big state entitlement system and they will show their fealty generation after, toward us. The problem with that is people do assimilate. 
and after the second or third generation, it's not just Pelosi and Giuliani. You can't tell who they're going to vote for by their ethnic last name. That's one thing. The second thing is if they start to do that, they only create a greater pushback by the people they're demonizing. So now we have this word white that I don't remember really ever thinking of. But when you say white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, you, 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 safe space, trigger warning, sanctuary, data, people say everybody is tribalizing, and I don't want to tribalize, but if, I'm, if they're going to keep telling me I'm part of a tribal, then I'm going to be tribal, and then they're going to start voting, and that group, as you say, is still the majority. So the left is in a conundrum, and they don't know quite, they anticipated their demography by about 50 years got ahead of it. And even if they had the demography they want right now, they're not quite sure how to make people vote monolithically according to their skin color rather than their content of their character. So they're, they're, I think they're in a dilemma. And meanwhile, Donald Trump, being crafty, is going around the back and saying, you in <laughs> Detroit and you in Newark and you guys in Bakersfield and San Jose, I'm going to get you better jobs in a way that they never did. So you don't have to tell anybody you're voting for me. Just go in there and vote. And they're so leveraged into having a 90% African-American voter, 75, they can't afford any hemorrhaging because they've lost the, the white working class. That's their dilemma. And it explains a lot of the invective and rhetoric and anger, I think. Do you, do you think the path that uh, the president traveled in the last election is repeatable in the same way, or will it require new strategy, new focus, or does it roughly mimic going through the Midwest and the the jobs piece? Yeah, I think it's going to be roughly the same with some qualifiers. And we should remember that he's following a pattern so far of Bill Clinton getting really hurt in the first uh, 94 midterm and Barack Obama in the 2000, and then polling about 42%, and then coming back and overwhelmingly winning, respectively, against Bob Dole and Mitt Romney. And so he's kind of on track. And, and as I said earlier, the, the indicators of his actual record, as was not true before, are there now. And so what will he do different? And it'll be in reaction to his opponents. Hillary Clinton. Uh, had posed in 2008, I think Barack Obama called her Annie Oakley, <laughs> as Miss Centrist. And, that, and there was Bill Clinton. And even though she's everything to everybody, there was still that lingering centrist. This new generation on these issues that I talked about, from reparations to wealth taxes to Green Deal, they haven't... If you said to Ocasio-Cortez or Representative Omar, I think you're a socialist. That would be a slur, but today she'd say, you're right, and I'm happy and proud of it. And yet socialism doesn't pull among the whole population very well. So I think what I'm getting at is that Donald Trump is probably going to say, I I gave you a good economy, I didn't get you in a war, you may not like me, but I'm the only thing between you and socialism. And it'll, I guess the mystery of this election will will hinge on whether the Democrats go the whole 1972 McGovern route or the 1984 Mondale route, thinking, misreading the last election. They misread the 68 and they misread the 80 election. And they probably will misread the 2006. They should move to the center. They should nominate a a Joe Biden and discipline him and get another centrist candidate. I don't think they're going to do that. Mm 
I think they're in a trajectory they can't stop. They're in a revolutionary cycle that we saw that with the latest anti-Semitism debacle where some members of the Democratic House had said things that were abjectly anti-Semitic. I mean, there's 23 nations in the Middle East and they keep going picking on just one. There's 193 nations in the world and they're not worried about civil rights in Cuba or women's rights in Saudi Arabia or the religious uh, persecution in China. They're just this one nation. They're obsessed with it in an anti-Semitic fashion. And yet the Democrats can't police their own because they're so afraid that if I have a resolution deploring anti-Semitism, then this young group will, will fight back and they're not sure to what degree their own party agrees with them. In other words, they believe that this new leftism may be anti-Semitic and it's a key component you look at Farrakhan and identity politics and are thinking, my gosh, we're not anti-Semitic, but if we express displeasure with anti-Semitism, we're going to lose this whole generation of Democrats because they're not, they're not ashamed of it. In fact, Representative Omar basically ha- uh, doubled down on it. And so, uh, mm-hmm. so I think all of these are going to be some factors in Trump, besides the classical ones, is on a November uh, day in 2020, what is the status of the economy? What's the status of overseas uh, American posture. And how do you analyze the media? The one tremendous advantage President Trump has is is he's savvy with the use of the media and he can draw attention and get, you know, earn media attention endlessly. And uh, on the conservative side, everyone is just just totally frustrated with a double standard uh, of trying to get the message out at all. And so all the points you make throughout the book are contingent upon, you know, a rational understanding of the economy's doing well. Yeah. When on most every, you know, media station, you never hear any rational discussion of the economy whatsoever. Yeah. You never hear about the low unemployment rates. You never hear about the job creation, the, yes. the capital investment, yeah. the stock market going through the roof. Uh, on the announcement of Trump winning, yeah. Right. I mean, forward looking expectations and boom, the markets through the roof. And one of the things I love about the book and uh, as a teacher, professor, my, my students, this is the perfect uh, case study of making an argument and then just evidence, 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 evidence. And as a case of the, the, the clear double standard back in 08, you, you mentioned it was deemed dirty to play clips of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright screaming, GD America. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's somehow off limits that we can't attack someone who says that about our country in the most revolting way. Uh, but not so suggest that John McCain was nearly senile and supposedly could not remember how many homes he owned. Mm-hmm. And that he's a veritable racist and seeking to deny Obama election in, in 12. Yeah. Uh, or Obama's checkered youth, dubious past friends, associates, and family were still off limits, but not so the case for Mitt Romney. Yeah. And you just go page after page after page. It's just not a one-off. Well, I, it's a sustained I, attack. I think what's happened is in the past we knew that Walter Cronkite or Huntley Brinkley or John Chancellor, the, the old network monopoly, were liberals, but they at least made an effort to be appear disinterested. This new generation, especially in the age of the Internet and cable news, doesn't make that assumption. In fact, when Trump ran, I think Jim Rutenberg and people like Christiana Amanpour said, we can't be empirical or disinterested because he poses such a threat. And so the Shorenstein Center's 
which is a Harvard um, graduate program. It's quite liberal and progressive. Has determined based on news account, 90 percent, 80 to 90 percent, I should say, of their coverage is anti-Trump. For them to say that's quite astounding. And then we, we we remember the WikiLeaks Podesta troll, where journalists were actually contacting the campaign to send their stories to be approved by John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. We remember journalists. We remember all of that. So we we agree that the the media no longer feels that they can just report the news, but they have a higher obligation to a quality of result progressive politics. So how do you deal with that? And one of the reasons we see we're not dealing very well if you're Donald Trump because he's he's polling 44 percent, but he has a record that had he been Obama or any other prior, he'd be up to in the 60s. Mm-hmm. The only hope that I have is two things. One, there, in this fragmented media market, there are things like podcasts, the present 60 million Twitter followers, there's social media, and even though that is censored by the the monopolies in Silicon Valley, you can get an alternate news out, the Drudge Report. Rush Limbaugh does a wonderful job on talk radio, Mark Levin. Mm-hmm. There's avenues. Mm-hmm. And then within this group, if you look at the public estimation of their value and their virtue, it's like this. And the reason is something like CNN, for example, they had to fire their religion host for using obscenity about Trump. Their New Year's host, they had to fire for holding up a decapitated head of Trump. They had to fire their four marquee reporters. If you look at BuzzFeed, uh, BuzzFeed was just caught with a lie about Michael Cohn being suborned for perjury by Trump. So they, in their zeal to, and we saw the Jesse Smollett case where they created a, a narrative, or the Covington Kids case, it was a narrative, or the George Zimmerman and Trayvon, whether it was photoshopping or editing of it they have lost public credibility and and I think the the real backlash against that's not fully developed yet because now we have this word that they develop fake news mm-hmm. but it really it really does mean the media is faking things to damage people they don't like ideologically so I think they're having a comeuppance and the fact that Trump is even surviving given that media hatred and venom and and disparate coverage is it, it shows you that something's going on there's some kind of reckoning, but it's still very difficult. Yeah, is there is there any creative way to challenge the mainstream press? I've, I've been amazed that there's not any coverage of the press itself. Yeah. Maybe because you know, there's Fox News, a few conservative outlets you mentioned, mm-hmm. but up on the Hill, you wake up every day where there's Politico and Roll Call and the Hill, mm-hmm. and just it's they're all just Hill papers that are far left. Yeah. And when we were doing the budget debates, et cetera, the deficit only came up as a matter of substance when President Trump got through the tax cuts yeah. and the economy took off. And that was $150 billion over some years paid for, if you grow at 3 3.5%, fully paid for. And at the end of the year in that same budget cycle, there was $400 billion, right? So the tax cuts yeah. are $150 billion that pay for themselves. And to get nine Senate Democrats on board... It was $400 billion not paid for and increased government spending. Not a word from the press. Well, I think one thing that's happened we haven't mentioned is when you talk about the Washington Post or uh, Politico or BuzzFeed, a lot of these entities that are ideologically driven are not revenue producing. But we, we, we've got to step back and realize that the way that wealth is distributed, it's not some rich old white 
Republican in the oil business has got the money these days. If you look at the top 20 multi-billionaires, you've got Warren Buffett, you've got the Microsoft fortune, you've got the um, Bloomberg fortune, you've got the Soros fortune. You, you, you almost go down to the Koch brothers, and even they are libertarian rather than conservative. So you don't really find any conservatives. Even the Walmart children are not necessarily conservative, and they give very... Uh, generously to think tanks, media groups, individual websites. They're, they form all the time. In fact, I was ta attacked yesterday by a website formed by the founder of eBay uh, in which they published a story about this book that I was a Nazi and I was like Martin Heidegger serving Hitler. And the way to Hitler. Where did that writer get the money to pay for that? He was writing for a venue that loses money but is subsidized by somebody on the left and, and the right doesn't have a counterpart to that. They don't, because they don't have those big fortunes anymore. Mining, farming, oil. That's, it's in technology and finance and media. And the left has captured that. And that's why you can see these inconsistencies of the left. For all of their talk of trust busting and equality, they have exempted a lot of these uh, big fortunes from rules of regulation and monopoly and conflict mm -hmm. of interest and product liability because they, the Democratic Party is a party of the very wealthy and some of the upper professionals and the very poor and the old middle class Democratic voter is now a Republican voter. So a lot of this is what I was talking about was not just a geographical war but it's a class war. It's a class between the middle class who says we don't have the romance of the poor for you people and what we do, whether it's jet skis or Winnebago's, you resent, and we don't have the culture of the wealthy, and therefore you ostracize us, you make fun of us, and yet we're the muscles that produce the steel and the food and the, uh, the stuff, the material stuff that makes a society go. I'm going to jump topics a little bit, but related to the concentration of wealth and power, the, the deep state comes up. I was somewhat surprised uh, in your analysis the you had one full page of evidence again, and many linkages you had between many of the deep state heavyweights, John Brennan and James Clapper, Charles Bolden, Right in Order, etc., several links to Jihad, the Muslim Brotherhood, Al Jazeera, over and over and over. What is it that connects these dots, and how do you define the deep state? Yeah. And it, for me, in Congress, it's, it's been just stunning to see yeah. the, the top several people at FBI, yeah. Justice, et cetera, either being fired, stepping down, being demoted, et cetera. there's 12 at FBI and, and, and DOJ and FBI. There's 20. I think the deep state is a permanent class of federal and also state and local worker who feels that um, they're exempt from public accountability either through civil service or union, and yet they have the resources of the state. So if they want to regulate a, uh, a farmer or they want to sue uh, a coal company, they have the means to bankrupt that person. And, the, and Or if they're a federal prosecutor and they say, we're going to bring you in front of a liberal uh, Washington, D.C. jury and we're going to tie you up for years unless you... Uh, admit to this, 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 as we saw with the Mueller. That's what the deep state, and they, they tend to be progressive only in the sense that the ideology of making them bigger and giving them more power is, is democratic and leftist, and that's one of the reasons that they hated Trump. You mentioned some of the names, but I feel like I'm in an alternate re universe. James Clapper went before a, uh, a congressional committee, and under oath, he swore that 
the United States was not intercepting communications of private citizens. Then he said, I lied, but I gave the least untruthful. There were no consequences. John Brennan went before a congressional committee and said, I can tell you that we have not had any collateral damage and drone attacks in Afghanistan. That was a lie, and he admitted it. He went before another committee and he said, we do not at the CIA tap into Senate staff. That was a lie. There has been no ramifications. Uh, James Comey said, I think, to two of your congressional committees on 245 occasions, I can't remember. I don't know. If you or I said that to an IRS investigator, we'd be in jail. So there are people who have an assumption uh, that they have a a right to overturn an election or the will of the people because they're exempt and they're powerful. When Andrew McCabe said that he thought Donald Trump wasn't acting right and he went to Rod Rosenstein, the uh, deputy attorney general, and they discussed whether they should tap the president of the United States with a wire and then those two would decide whether they should poll cabinet officers to remove an elected president under the 25th Amendment, which was never designed for that. That was the epitome of what the deep state thought of itself and its power and its morality. And it's, it's throughout history at Versailles or in the Spanish Empire, at the Escorel or the Byzantine Empire um, in Constantinople, it, it's always a problem. It always grows and it, it has pretensions of supremacy. I don't know how we stop it, but we've got to speak out against it. Yeah, well, that, my constituents and conservatives and even liberals, I get the chance to meet, I met Bernie Sanders, and he's in agreement with a lot of what you just said about the deep state and the concentration of wealth and power, et cetera, on the the left. So it's it's interesting. Everybody knows this, and people would ask you, what can we do? And you're, you're really left in a tough bind that the major politicians, uh, they know that if you mess with the, the deep state, the CIA, and they, they told Trump, I think yeah. it was uh, Schumer, yeah. made a comment with respect to if you, you, well, you I, mess I with them. many of those quotes in the book when Schumer said they have mm-hmm. ten, six ways in Sunday to get you. And I right. think when John Brennan tweeted an attack on Trump, Samantha Power said, not a good idea to get mm-hmm. John blank off. And there's a lot of, I had a lot of evidence of what they thought of themselves. Mm-hmm. Brennan and Clapper and Comey and McCabe thought they were exempt. And so far they're right. They have not been exposed to criminal prosecution for acts that if any one of us had done it, we would have been leveraged. And yet we go after all of these minor characters. Uh, we, we find a hound Carter Page. We go after Papadopoulos. And we threaten them with years of imprisonment and financial ruin unless they give a particular testimony we find useful, but we have all of this other asymmetrical criminality that we don't touch. And it's because part of it is our own fault. We, we give undue prestige and obeyance to people that have alphabet titles after their name, JD, PhD, MA, MD, uh, or they're at the Council and Formulations or at the Hoover Institution. And rather than just examining people, that was part of a revolution of the 30s, 40s, and 50s of the managerial society. We, we feel that there's a professional class because they're credentialed and they work at the right place, that therefore that's, that equates with wisdom and sobriety. And I think that's another, yet another reason that people hated Donald Trump. Because he, if you walked into a room with Donald Trump, and I haven't done it, but if you said, Mr. Trump, you can't do that because the Council on Foreign Relations thinks it's a bad idea, he would probably say, well, tell me wh- what good idea they've had lately. Was it, was it the North Korea six-party agreement? Was it the agreed-on framework? Was it, it hasn't worked. 
Was it Afghanistan? We haven't won. So that's one of the reasons they don't like him. Yeah, and it's interesting when Charlottesville came up or you're called names uh, linked to Nazis, et cetera, that requires a big state. And our philosophy believes the exact opposite. We want a, a reduced role of the federal government. Madisonian yeah. logic wants, you know, there'd be separation between federal, state, and local. And then at the federal, there's separation of powers. And do, do you see any hope? President Trump is fighting this war daily in trying to fight the Leviathan. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel that we're able to reduce the size and scope of government and the power that's being wielded, or is it, as you noted, it's continually grown from yeah, my, the 50s. I think the problem is that we hear that Donald Trump has not filled federal offices, that he's deregulated 200 key, regu- that's all good, but at the same time, the cost of government and the deficit has been rising, and so you, you want to know if he's um, some person engaged in a hopeless, you know, he's a Don Quixote type character, because it's very hard to see that he has the expertise and the experience and the help to systematically go through that administrative state and say, does this person really need it? Is that person wanted? Can't we cut money here? Isn't this person too powerful? I'm, I'm really worried about the, uh, the role of the federal prosecutors uh, and, and to lesser extent state prosecutors. The idea that a federal prosecutor can decide which pr- completely which case to try and then to leverage witnesses with the power of the state behind him to extract a confession is really scary because it's predicated on the idea that I'm going to go to you and I want to convict him and I found something in your past and I'm going to try you and it's going to cost you a million dollars to defend yourself and I've got an unlimited budget and I will break you unless you testify against him. I don't think our jurisprudence ever was intended to work that way. And so if I go back to my constituents, uh, I'm now at Liberty University, dean of the business school, my students always say, what, what hope can you give us as students? Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what should we prepare for? We, if we are interested in serving the country and helping to build a, a better future for ourselves, uh, what counsel would you give to, to young folks? How do they become active in politics? Well, I think I, I do this a lot, and I have children of my own. And I get these questions. And the, first of all, the questions are, do you think that I'm paying all this money into Medicare and Social Am I going to get any? Or I'm 30 years old and I still owe uh, $90,000 in a student loan. Or I live in California and I'm married, but a house anywhere near La Jolla to Berkeley along that strip is $2,000 a square foot. How am I going to do this? So they're reaching the limits, and they're starting to wonder what's happening. Now, in the short term, the socialist wing of the Democratic Party says, well, I can solve it. We'll just give you free Medicare for all, and we'll give you a free house, and we'll cancel your debt. But what has to be uh, the Republican response to that is, we are going to help you along physical fiscal responsibility and sober financial means and personal responsibility, but we're here to help you. And we haven't done that. Uh, I can remember going broke farming almost when the price of raisins crashed. And a member of the administration, that time it was a Reagan administration, came out and said, this is called creative destruction. And this is going to make food prices cheaper for everybody. It's going to make you more lean and mean. And the guys overseas that are subsidizing and dumping raisins, it's not going to be sustainable. And we all said, 
in theory, but we're all going to go broke. He said, well, the guys that survive, okay, there's a logic to that. Taken, but when taken to ex extreme without uh, sensitivity to the people involved, so I watched that for 30 years. I wrote two books about it. I saw every neighbor around me from 40 to 200 acres destroyed. Their kids moved away. I saw alcoholism. I saw drug addicts. And now this entire agrarian grid is owned by 14, 15,000 acre conglomerates. And this was we on the Republican conservative side, and I think Trump may or may not have wanted to start this conversation, but he did start it. We have to say there are cultural ramifications mm -hmm. from unfettered free market capitalism, mm -hmm. which is the only system that works. Mm -hmm. We want to preserve it. We want to enhance it. We like what it does, but we've got to figure out how to preserve our cultural, religious, community traditions so they just don't, or what they call, creatively destroy I think we're running down on the time on our clock over here, but I, I just I think you just wrapped it up and summarized at the end there. I'm a free market economist, did a PhD way back then, but I went to seminary, and I think you're right. The free market system has made the, the world rich beyond belief. China is now moving toward free markets and growing at 10% a few years back, yeah. and we're moving toward socialism. And I think the younger generation is starting to turn, so I think you offered up some hope, but it, it is that traditional cultural peace and the mores uh, that the American people know is being defended uh, by the president. And so I want to thank you for your book, The Case for Trump. I hope everyone out there buys it. I'm going to encourage my students at Liberty uh, to read it. And more than that, I want to thank you for dedicating your life to the pursuit of truth. And uh, you're an icon in the conservative community. Everyone I, everyone I meet loves you and, and the work you've done with your life and we well, just thank want to you. thank you. I appreciate that because uh, sometimes out in, in Fresno County, I don't, you know, it's, it's a very different existence. And I, I wrote the book, as I said, for the irredeemables and the deplorables to give them some uh, confidence that what their gut instinct or what their rationale had concluded may have been pretty much accurate. Thank right. you. And, and I also want to thank C-SPAN for giving us a forum. Yes where we can dig in a little deeper and, and not just and do I, this chatty, chatty, you know, And I politics. would really like to, to, to thank C-SPAN because I think it's been some 20 years with my experience from book talk to mm -hmm. in-depth mm -hmm. that they actually came out to my farm <laughs> and interviewed me at a time when uh, I was writing a book. And every time that I've written a book, whatever the ideology, whatever the argument is, C-SPAN's been there to uh, advance the... Uh, the dissemination of knowledge. Right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Victor Davis Hansen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.